The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. And our um, show today is going to be talking about um, memory um, for the most part and why forgetting is important to us, which for some of us is uh, reassuring to know that forgetting is okay. And our um, speaker and our um, guest today is Dr. Gayatri Debbie, who is a doctor. Um, she's a professor at at New York University School of Medicine. She's an attending physician at Lenox Hospital. She's a board-certified neurologist with additional certifications in pain medicine, psychiatry, behavioral neuro- neurology. She is elected. She's an elected um, to the American College of Physicians and of the Academy of Neurology. Dr. Debbie specializes in early diagnosis and treatment of memory issues related to aging and menopause. Um, for the last 20 years. Um, so thank you, Dr. Debbie, for um, coming on the show today and talking about this. Um, thank you for having me, Mary. You know, um, one of the, I guess I'm going to start with the thing that I've noticed the most is that um, when people were, were talking to me about menopause, nobody was talking to me about the memory part of it. So when mm-hmm. I started menopause, I was kind of, I was really concerned because I'd never heard anybody talk about memory issues related to menopause. Could you expand on that for us? Sure. Um, You know, I think people are beginning to be more aware of the memory problems that occur to women as they go through the menopausal transition, which can begin as early as your late 30s in about 10% of women. Um, And what happens then is you start to have trouble focusing, you have trouble finding the right words, you have trouble with remembering um, things that you've been told, you may have a tendency to repeat yourself, you may have difficulty with multitasking, Um, and it can be very scary because it gets worse, Uh, sometimes women get depressed about it, Um, and there have been several studies that show that the the number of women going through this kind of change with a menopausal transition may be as high as 40% and maybe even up to 60% of women uh, might have these kinds of symptoms. Um, and being aware of it and being able to treat it is very important because sometimes women begin to think that they might have dementia or Alzheimer's even uh, when they start to have these symptoms. So is it related to a hormonal imbalance or the lack of estrogen or what causes it? Yeah. 
That's correct. The feeling is that it may have something to do with the reduction in estrogen um, that occurs in women as they go through menopause. Because as you know, during menopause, women stop making estrogen because their ovaries um, you know, don't function um, as, or function very minimally compared to the way they used to. So is this a precursor to dementia or Alzheimer's, or is this just part of no, normal aging? No, I mean, it's just a, it's a, usually a self-limited condition where women have these symptoms, they get, um, you know, it, the symptoms come, it's much like hot flashes. Most women get better and they no longer suffer from hot flashes. Most women get better and no longer suffer from the memory problem, um, but on rare occasions it can persist. But having these symptoms does not mean that it puts you at higher risk for developing dementia. Well, that's a relief to know. So what <laughs> is normal aging for, yeah. for the brain? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's a special syndrome that's associated with women going through menopause. So. And men have something so, similar too, although it's not quite as dramatic, uh, where they have cognitive changes as they go through their andropause, where they start to make less testosterone, usually beginning in their 40s, and they have some cognitive changes associated with it, but it's never quite as dramatic because women, their changes, um, they actually completely stop making uh, estrogen, so the effects are more dramatic. So... In the overall scheme of things, what role, role does memory play for us and, and forgetfulness? Well, memory is, I mean, it's um, built into uh, our brains by evolution to allow us to learn what to be afraid of, to learn what, what um, to avoid, to, to help us remember what are safe places. You know, it's really very important for us to learn and grow as human beings, and forgetfulness is also kind of tied into memory in the sense that if we didn't know how to forget, we wouldn't be able to function very well because um, we wouldn't be able to learn um, how, to, um, how to do something different, differently from before. So if you, um, you know, if you... Um, where spoke, if you used to speak with a lisp and you wanted to learn how to speak without a lisp, you have to kind of almost forget or learn over how to speak without a lisp. Um, you know, if you uh, broke up because you had an unhappy marriage and you want to get remarried or fall in love again, then you kind of have to learn how to do that. Um, and in order to do that, you have to forget you know, the person you were in love with before. So memory is actually very important in terms of helping us, um, you know, remember good things that are helpful for our survival and forgetting is important in also in terms of allowing us to grow. What about the feelings that are attached to memories? Are, are some memories easier to forget than others based on the feelings associated with them or is, do the feelings not play a role? Say that again, Mary. Well, you know, for a lot of us, as you just mentioned, if you um, if you went through a painful divorce, you have uh, feelings, intense feelings attached to those memories. Right. Um, so, do 
Does the level of feeling that we have toward a memory affect our ability to forget it? Or sure, I mean, feelings can kind of either um, make a memory more vivid, therefore we'll remember something better, or feelings can also have the opposite effect where, you know, if something is too painful for us, um, sometimes we will then suppress that memory. Um, So it works in both ways. Feelings can either make memories uh, stronger or it can weaken a memory too. One of the things I've noticed is that um, there are certain, like, songs will take me to a, to a very specific memory or certain sights will take me to a certain specific memory. Are memories usually tied to one of our senses? Um, most memories are a composite of more than one sense. So, um, you know, but generally memories tend to be based more on one sense than the other senses. So you would have a memory for a particular perfume, a memory for a sound or a song, as you say. Um, often that memory will also have some feelings associated with, with it. Um, it can also have some impressions of the time that you heard the song, where you were when you heard the song. So all that becomes a composite. It's almost like a painting but there's one sense that tends to predominate. And it could be a visual sense, it could be an oral sense, it could be a sense of a tactile sense. Uh, So, yeah, so it's usually a composite of multiple senses. So in in normal forgetting, um, typically that's done, as you said, to, to learn a new skill. Um, is that a conscious thing that we do, or is that just very subconscious? Well, we tend to forget most of the things we're exposed to on most days. So, for example, uh, you and I are having this conversation. We're going to forget almost all parts of it, except maybe bits and pieces of it. Um, you know, we may remember the gist of it. We won't remember the intonation in our voice or the particular questions that were asked, um, and that's normal. Uh, so most of, you know, you may be, you said you were in Florida, um, you may look out your window and see how the weather looks like, uh, you may be in a particular room and notice the, the color of the furniture, the style of the furniture in the room, but most of that you know now, but you will forget, you know, a few days from now or even tomorrow if it's not something important to you. So much of what we're exposed to on a daily basis uh, we tend to forget, and we usually remember just a small part of it that was relevant to us, that um, that helps us make sense of the world. And so forgetting is much we, more automatic. How do we test for, like, a healthy um, memory? Is there a test for it? or? Yeah, so most people think that, you know, I've, ha- I've had patients say, oh, you know, Forgetting is okay until you forget that you forget, then it's a problem. Or I've had other people say, well, you know, if you forget where your keys are, that's, that's okay. But if you forget what a key does, then that's not okay. So people try to um, come up with different simple ways to measure memory and measure forgetfulness. Um, but honestly, the best way to measure memory um, and to test for any memory loss is by doing a standardized um, cognitive evaluation that sometimes can take, you know, several hours. 
um, and it looks carefully at all the different aspects of your brain ability and puts you through all these different um, tests. And then eventually we figure out whether or not compared to other men or women in your age group with similar levels of education, if you're performing um, you know, on par with them, if you're performing below par, if you're performing below par, is that across the board or is it just only in memory? Um, so during, so it's a very complex series of questions and um, eva- an evaluation that's done. At the end of it, uh, you then figure out, you're then told whether or not you have a memory problem, uh, what it could be from, whether it's just a function of anxiety or possibly drugs or um, whether it's just normal aging, forgetfulness of getting older, or whether it's symptomatic of something like Alzheimer's disease. And where can people go to get tested? Um, generally, most places, you know, for, for if, depending on the age, if it's a young child, often they'll go to um, children with memory loss, usually, um, let's say they've, they've having trouble learning, they can go to a learning specialist. Um, if, they, um, if it's an adult, um, usually they'll go to a memory disorder center, um, and at those centers people have the um, qualifications to test a patient to evaluate for any memory problems. And we'll be right back after this commercial um, for more on memory loss with Dr. Gayatri Devi. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black and Dari Samia. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandrabali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time 
Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our topic today is um, why forgetting is important to us. And our guest is Dr. Gayatri Devi, who is a clinical professor at the New York University School of Medicine. She's an attending physician at Lenox Hill Hospital. She's a board-certified neurologist with additional certifications in pain medicine, psychiatry, and behavior neurology. Um, before we went to break, we were, we were talking about um, different types of memory and um, memory loss, what's normal and what isn't, and different things that stimulate memory loss. And um, one of the things that I have noticed with um, the folks that we work with that, and, and I've noticed in working with people that have addictive disorders is the role that um, memory plays in terms of people who have blackouts when they're, um, you know, some people have significant blackouts where some people have um, what we call brownouts, which is not a technical term, but it's a short memory lapse and they then remember. Do you know what causes the, the blackout when somebody um, is drinking alcohol or taking other substances? Right. So um, in order for us to store memory, we really have to be able to pay attention to our environment to be able to process, to direct our attention to whatever it is we wish to pay attention to, um, and then to be able to store that um, in a way that we are able to retrieve it at a later uh, time. Um, so memory really involves, you know, several steps. There's the attention, there's the processing of the memory, then there is the storing of the memory in a specific part, and then there's a retrieval of the memory at some later point. And what happens when you, you know, with the use of alcohol um, more commonly and certainly with certain types of drugs is that that, that several-step process gets um, interrupted and um, oftentimes attention is impaired um, and sometimes the processing of the memory is also impaired because of the attentional impairment. Um, and then if memory is stored, um, it's not stored by the proper conduits so that when you are trying to retrieve the memory, you're not able to retrieve the memory. Sometimes with help, um, you know, with the help of cues, some patients may be able to retrieve aspects of the blackout, usually the brownout period more than the blackout period, um, and therefore they'll be able to remember little fragments um, but the vast majority of the memory then is is either never laid down or is no longer recoverable. Um, and for some folks that I personally know in long-term recovery, um, they still struggle with memory, being able to store memories. Um, is that just a side effect of the amount of damage that was done to their brain or 
um, would that have maybe well, occurred anyway? Right. I mean, I, I don't believe, you know, we can actually quantify um, that there's damage done to their brain in terms of, you know, the brain is full of st- structural connections and functional connections. Um, so sometimes the structure appears intact. So if you did an MRI, say, most of the brain appears to be, uh, it looks like the way it should be, but then the, fun- the connections between the nerve cells may be damaged or um, there may be some loss in the connections in, in terms of how um, a circuit of nerve cells functions as a group. Um, so that may also cause problems. So when we talk about damage, people usually think that there's a part of the brain that's, um, that's been destroyed, and that's usually not the case. It's much more common that different circuits within the brain are not functioning as well as they should, even though the individual components are still there. The connections aren't, um, aren't as, as robust as they should be. Um, one of the things I learned a long time ago when I was in nursing school was that we were born with a certain amount of brain cells and that once those brain cells were destroyed, they were destroyed forever. And it seems to be the new understanding of neuroplasticity and the ability for the brain to heal. And um, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Right. So... Um... You're absolutely right, Mary, in the sense that we're born with a great deal more nerve cells than we need, so that by the time we're, you know, we grow into adulthood, we've really lost half of the nerve cells that we were born with, and that's a normal reorganization of the brain so that, you know, it's almost a pruning of the neural tree so that some of the cells that are lost or cells that... Um, are part of redundant circuits, and maybe there are more cells saved in certain parts of the brain that may deal with something that you as a child excelled in. So, for example, if you like to play violin as a child, then those parts of the brain that dealt with your violin playing may be, um, you know, sprouted more connections, more cells were maintained there. So your brain growing up, Mary would look very different from your sisters or your brothers or um, other people who are genetically related, even if it were an identical twin, for example. Um, so, so that kind of pruning and restructuring of the brain is normal, and it's, it's not something that we should be worried about. It's, um, it's a characteristic of the maturing brain. And then the idea of growing nerve cells once, once you're an adult. Um, it's true, we do still manage to make a few nerve cells um, as, as adults, but that number is a small number. It's more um, not necessarily the, the, the growth of new nerve cells that allows our brain to be plastic. It's, you know, plasticity to maintain neural plasticity. Um, it is the ability for the brain to um, make new connections, and it's the new connections, the ability of the brain to form um, different circuits using the same cells that allows us to be more um, 
responsive to the environment, to be able to recover from injuries, to perhaps learn new behaviors. So brain plasticity is related to that, is related to um, circuit changes rather than really the growth of new nerve cells. So how do we um, keep our brains healthy? I mean, as we age or... Um, are there certain things we can do? I know there's been a lot in the news about fish oils. There's been a lot in the news about um, learning a new language. Um, what are the things we can do to keep our brain healthy? Um, the best things you can do are to do everything that's healthy for your heart. So whatever's good for your heart is going to be good for your brain. So a lot of aerobic exercise, eating lean meats, eating leafy green vegetables, eating food that's high in antioxidants, um, being able to um, maintain your weight, to keep it down um, to a healthy weight, to reduce um, cholesterol, to reduce the risk for diabetes, um, to, not, to, drink and, to drink in moderation so that um, you protect your brain that way, um, to be able to... Um, Keep yourself intellectually active as best you can, um, both, both by doing cognitive things like reading books, but also by doing others, other physical, physical activities like sculpting or dancing or swimming. Um, all of those activities also use brain uh, power, and it's good for the brain uh, overall. So basically, you want to adopt a lifestyle which involves a lot of behavioral modification that promotes brain health. Um, and if you're not sure what kinds of behaviors promote brain health, just think about what kinds of behavior will help your heart. And almost all those behaviors, in fact, every one of them, uh, will also help keep your brain healthy. So if, um, if, if you had one opportunity to say to people, do this, what would it be? Would it be exercise? Would it be... Um, yeah, I would say aerobic exercise is probably one of the best things you can do. At least three times a week, 45 minutes, will be helpful for the brain. And I think that's partly because we've become a sedentary society. Um, we're not right. doing very much with our bodies, yeah. Obviously, diet um, is important also. But, uh, yeah. What about, like, uh, fatty uh, fish high in you know, like salmon and uh, higher fat fish and that have higher uh, fish oils. Are fish oils good for the brain or? Yeah, all the omega-3 fatty acids are felt to be good for the brain and they're also good for the heart. So, you know, um, the fatty fish like salmon, um, you know, staying away from the um, saturated, you know, the kinds of bad fats that aren't good for you, um, staying with um, chicken and fish over uh, heavier cuts of meat, um, you know, that's all helpful for the brain. What, what effect is de- does somebody who's experiencing depression have on their memory? Is there a connection between memory loss and depression? Right. So um, depression can um, basically reduce your motivation so that a depressed person is not motivated to attend to things, is not motivated to necessarily recall um, things on command. There's less of an interest, perhaps, in 
being engaged in one's surroundings. So that creates problems not just in the laying down of memory and attending to new memory, but also in the retrieval of old memories. Because if you really don't care enough because your depression is debilitating you enough um, so that it's not a goal of yours, then you're not going to um, remember as much and, and also attend enough to new stimuli to want to store them. So it's, it's a compl- complicated process. Um, there's also the idea that early in the course of certain types of dementias, for example, like Alzheimer's, very early on, before the person begins to have cognitive or, or very, very early in the course of their cognitive complaints, they may also notice some uh, evidence or notice some mild depressive symptoms as well. But that doesn't mean that you know, depression is causing the Alzheimer's, because that's not true, merely that sometimes when you start to have cognitive changes, you may get depressed, which is, which is um, you know, which is easy to understand. What does cause Alzheimer's? Uh, we don't really know what causes the pathology that you know, that causes the brain to have the nerve cells die, which ultimately results in Alzheimer's. Nobody really knows. We, we do know that there are certain situations that increase your risk. So if you have a family history of Alzheimer's, you have a slightly increased risk for dementia. If you have, um, you know, if you have a lot of cardiac disease, um, if you have high cholesterol, um, if you've had strokes, all of those things may increase your risk. If you've had any kind of significant head injury, um, then that may also increase your risk. So a multitude of factors kind of um, go down the funnel and ultimately create the clinical syndrome of Alzheimer's. But what is the final trigger that leads to the clinical presentation? No one's really sure. The pathology, of course, any... is the presence of plaques in the brain. There are certain, and people think these plaques are distinct from the plaques that you get in your heart, and they're dif- distinct from the plaques that you have on your teeth. These are special plaques that are present in the brain in patients with Alzheimer's. And what they do is that they, ultimately, there's an association between the presence of the plaques and the depth of nerve cells in the brain. What are, are there any new treatments for Alzheimer's or anything that's been proven to be more effective than anything else? Um, I think, you know, the current treatments that we have are effective in some patients um, and less so in other patients. I think the important thing to realize is Alzheimer's is, is a spectrum disorder. There are patients with mild forms of Alzheimer's. There are patients with more severe forms of Alzheimer's. Um, So you want to be able to treat it like it's a spectrum disorder. And there will be some people who respond very well to treatment. Uh, There are some people who don't respond at all to treatment. Um, And I think what's important for the public to know is that if if there is memory, if, if someone's experiencing a memory problem, they want to try to have that looked into and not be afraid that they're going to, you know, sometimes people I think are worried, worried that they're going to be told that they have something like Alzheimer's and if they have something like Alzheimer's, some people feel like that's almost um, the same as 
receiving a death sentence, that nothing's going to make them better. And that's not true. There are various behavioral lifestyle modifications. There are medications that are currently available. Uh, While there isn't a cure, there are very effective treatments that are available for patients. Um, One of the things I read in your biography was that you're um, interested in the use of brain stimulation for Alzheimer's. Right. Um, So, you know, that's some research I've been doing over the last several years, which is, you know, there is um, magnetic brain stimulation that's being used uh, for treating patients with depression. um, And what I, my theory was that in patients who have Alzheimer's, even though they they may have fewer brain cells because some of the cells have died, they still have very rich connections amongst those nerve cells that are still existing. So if you stimulated those circuits, the circuits that are still existing, then you may be able to maintain function in patients. Uh, So we published on that research and found that there were some patients who truly benefited from that type of treatment. And then now there's a, um, not from my research, but from, other people's research, um, there's a multi-center trial in the United States looking at brain stimulation for treating Alzheimer's. So currently, um, you know, the use is as an off-label use of a treatment because it's not yet approved in the United States for treating um, Alzheimer's. Well, as you said, this is a spectrum disorder, so some things will be very effective for some people and other things will work for other people. Um, that is really absolutely no correct, bullet. Mary. Yeah. And there's, I think we got no to think bullet. of Alzheimer's that way. Sorry? There's no magic bullet. There's no magic bullet, but the thing to know is that there, there are effective treatments. I think people get very depressed uh, when, there is, when they're told they have a diagnosis or they think that treatments will not work. And that's not true. I think there are patients, most people with Alzheimer's are living uh, lives in the community. Um, They don't, um, they're not in a nursing home somewhere. But when we think of Alzheimer's or when people think of Alzheimer's, they generally think of someone in a nursing home in a wheelchair not being able to talk or walk. And that's only a small minority of patients. The majority of patients are living productive lives in the community. And you you or I may not even realize they're having Alzheimer's. Wow, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, it's encouraging and it's because it's... Go ahead. It's very, it's very encouraging. Yeah. Because that's not how Alzheimer's is portrayed in the media. It's not how we think about it at all. Right. But it is the truth and, um, you know, uh, it is, as you say... It, You know, it's very much a spectrum disorder. So just like with autism, there are people on the mild ends of the autism spectrum and there are people who are severely impaired. And in the the old days, when we thought of autism, we thought about the kids who were really impaired or the adults who were really impaired. But now we've come to realize that there's a whole spectrum uh, and there are people with very mild autism. And similarly with Alzheimer's, there are people with mild Alzheimer's and there are people with severe Alzheimer's. And there are people who can be helped by treatment, and sometimes even with just some behavioral modification they can manage in society, in the community. Um, And there are people who really need a lot more help. What role does stress play with memory loss? 
if you're, you know, you're, you're at a stressful job, you are traveling a lot. I mean, do people who experience more stress have um, more memory loss than people who um, seem to have a calmer life? <laughs> That's a good question. That's a myth. <laughs> Yeah, I think we all are leading more stressful lives. You know, there's more required of people these days. You have to remember more. You may have more leisure, but you also have to be on your phone a lot more. Uh, People expect you to be available at all times. Um, So, yes, stress does play um, a role in memory um, because you um, have, you know, if you're really have a lot of stress in your life, if you're anxious, it's going to be harder for you to pay attention in the moment. It's going to be harder for you to recollect. We all have had the experience when we're anxious of not being able to come up with um, the right answer on a test, for example. Uh, whereas, you know, once you leave the interview room or the exam room, you just say, oh, my God, how could I have forgotten that very simple answer? So stress does play a role both in the in terms of paying attention and also in terms of retrieving a specific memory. Um, and the other very important thing that's happening to us more and more is that we're sleeping less. We don't sleep as much, and especially when we're under stress, people have more trouble sleeping. And sleep is one of the most important things you can do to help your memory because during sleep, um, memory gets consolidated. Um, and when you... Um, when you kind of shortchange sleep and you don't sleep as much as you you could or should because you're stressed or because you have too many um, demands on your time, then that can make your memory problems worse as well. I just want to also kind of emphasize that here we're talking about memory problems and not necessarily about a pathologic condition like Alzheimer's, which is a separate separate situation. There has been research, though, that some of the common sleep medications that are used for people to help them go to sleep, you know, the drugs that we know by common, the brand names would be drugs like Valium and Ambien and um, medications like that. They are um, known to, at least in one study, a very large study using thousands of um, people increase the risk of Alzheimer's by 60%. So that's a very uh, preventable um, cause, um, preventable way, method for, for uh, Alzheimer's disease, which is to reduce your intake of sleeping pills. Very good to know. Very good to know. You know, one of the things that I've noticed myself is that the use of technology I, before I had a cell phone, I could remember like 20 different phone numbers, and now I have to stop and think of my children's phone number because I'm so used to just plugging their name in. And does, the more we get attached to technology and the more that the Internet, the more we can Google something, is that going to affect our memory, how we evolve, how our memories evolve? Um, you, um, this is... an a topic that many people are interested in, which is if we keep outsourcing our memory, that's what I call it. You outsource your memory to your cell phone or you outsource your memory to Google because you don't really need to remember too many things because you can always Google it or you can always look up that number on your cell phone. 
Yes. I mean, I think memory, like many other brain functions, the less you use it, the less able you are to use it. So if you had a facility with the multiplication tables, I mean, when I was growing up, everyone had to memorize the multiplication tables. But now when my daughter was growing up, everyone, her her classmates used uh, calculators. So they don't know how to do a lot of mental math uh, because they use calculators instead. But does that really mean that they're worse at math? I don't think so. I just think that they approach math differently. So I think that we, as we outsource a lot of things that we can outsource to our our, uh, cell phones and to the internet, we may be developing different types of memories. You know, we may be better at knowing how to Google. We may be better um, at how to do searches. Um, And perhaps we'll be less better able to remember phone numbers, but we may have more friends because we'll have many more phone numbers on direct dial. So I I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a trade-off of living in the world that we do live in. It'll be interesting to see how all of that evolves over time. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> seems like we're outsourcing our memory a lot. Um, yeah, we, we are. We are, but we're also required to remember far more facts. We're asked to remember so many more names of people than we were ever, we ever had to 100 years ago. We have to remember the names of so many faces and you know, uh, th- there's just so much more information that the average person is required to remember. And if we really tried to do all that remembering, it would make us all quite anxious. So I think having Google and having cell phones is probably a good thing. Um, but it'd probably still be helpful to memorize one or two phone numbers for, you know, for when your phone dies. Right. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah. um, that's always good. Or they have a little old-fashioned uh, address book in your purse, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for being our guest today. Um, this has been fascinating, and um, uh, thank you for all your tremendous insight and for the work you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mary. I really had a wonderful time as well. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye. And we'll be right back after this commercial. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. 
As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. We all want to live a healthy, vibrant life. With so many toxins in our world, it becomes an uphill battle. Inflammation is the premise of all disease and comes from four sources of toxins. With a proper understanding of toxins as well as proper detoxification and nutrition, disease can be avoided. Tune in to Whole Healthy Living with Sharon Brennan and learn how you can live a clean, whole, and healthy life in a toxic world. Start your journey Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you know about Reiki? This method of healing can complement Western medicine as well as other alternative practices. Besides healing, it can have the additional effect of making you feel more positive about yourself and the world around you. By tuning into For the Love of Reiki with host Paula Vale, you'll find how Reiki can improve your health, bring balance into your life, and fill you with joy. For the Love of Reiki is broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
Welcome back to One Hour Good Time. Um, today, our show, we have been talking about why forgetting is important to us, and we've been talking about memory. Our guest today was Dr. Um, Gayatri Devi, who is a clinical professor at New York University School of Medicine. She's an attending physician at Lenox Hill Hospital, board-certified neurologist with a certifications in pain medicine, psychiatry, behavioral neurology, and um, Dr. Debbie had to leave us, um, which is why we had that very long commercial, but I think um, to kind of wrap up our show today, it's it, some of the take-home messages for me is that forgetting is an important part of our memory process, as Dr. Debbie said, that in order to sometimes learn a new skill, you have to forget the old one. For instance, um, in order to learn how to... Um, ride a two-wheel bicycle, we have to forget in some ways how to balance ourselves on a three, on a, on a tricycle so that um, this whole idea of forgetting should not be feared as much as some of those, some of us who are, you know, our 40s and beyond, um, we begin to forget things. And I know there's this panic, like, oh, my goodness, what's wrong? is this for sign of dementia, that some of this is normal. The other thing um, that I wish I'd known, um, but I now know, is that when women go through menopause, there is a direct link between decreased estrogen and our, and our memory. And the things we remember, there's more um, uh, word, we, we lose words. We stop in mid-sentence and we think, Oh my God! What was I? What was I trying to say? And that that is related to um, our hormonal changes. And interestingly enough, men experience something very similar as they age. Um, as uh, oftentimes, what happens with men is that they their testosterone lowers as they age, and so with the result of a lower testosterone they can also experience memory deficits or these uh, not remembering words or um, getting in the middle of a sentence and forgetting what you were going to say. And that that's normal as well. So um, I think the other take-home message is um, that Alzheimer's occurs on a continuum, as does um, depression, as does uh, autism, as does uh, addiction and um, schizophrenia. So all of these brain diseases occur on a continuum, and the earlier we can get diagnosed, um, usually the, uh, the better the prognosis is for any of these brain diseases, and that to know that there are um, Alzheimer's does not necessarily have to be a death sentence, just like schizophrenia doesn't have to be a death sentence for somebody. I think those are important messages. Um, being able to take good care of our brains um, is, is really important for all of us and that what's healthy for our heart is healthy for our brain. So that if we, if we do aerobic exercise 45 minutes, three times a week, if we're um, eating a lean meat, um, high plant diet, if we're um, doing something that's mentally stimulating, whether it's um, learning a new job, um, developing a new skill, whether it's uh, doing sculpting or crocheting or racquetball or something that we're learning that's new, anything that's stimulating our brain is helpful for us 
Um, and that as we age, we have a responsibility to take care of our brains as much as we do the rest of our um, bodies. And so oftentimes our our brains and our bodies are disconnected by medical providers. And um, it's just important to know that it's all connected. And I think that was a, a big take-home message um, from Dr. Debbie. When we think about memory um, with people that have... Um, substance use disorders, it's very common in early recovery for, for these folks to have just horrible memories. Um, you know, I, I know um, a number of people that in the old days was, who attended a 28-day rehabilitation program that I worked in, and we would show a movie the first week they were there. It might have been Father Martin's Shock Talk, and the way the movies rotated is that every 28 days we showed the movie again. And sometimes people would be the last day or the next to the last day, and they saw the same movie, and they had no memory of seeing it four weeks earlier. And so that if you are, um, if you are in early recovery or you have a family member or a close friend that's in early recovery, that these memory lapses and, um, are, are very common, and they usually improve over time. Um, blackouts, uh, oftentimes those memories never come back. Um, when we have brownouts, uh, oftentimes parts of those memories will come back. So I think it's important to understand that um, the better we take care of ourselves, the longer our bodies are going to last, both our brains and the rest of our bodies. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting that Dr. Debbie said was um, around uh, brain stimulation, the neuromagnetic stimulation that they're using for depression and some types of bipolar disorder, um, the research they're doing on Alzheimer's, which for some people turned, uh, showed to be very promising to stimulate the healthy uh, neural pathways that people have with Alzheimer's as opposed to targeting um, the ones that have that are that are diseased. Uh, that sounds incredibly promising from um, from my perspective. I think anytime we can um, explore what's healthy and capitalize on what on what's healthy, it's a win-win for for all of us. There'll probably be less side effects as a result of of those um, new hopefully research uh, alternative treatments for folks that have uh, Alzheimer's and other significant brain um, diseases. So I hope today um, you listened and learned something about why forgetting is important to us um, and to know that it's okay to forget, um, that it's part of our, it's a part of learning new things, it's part of our aging process, and that um, if you're looking for more information, um, on healthy aging, I think that there are a number of places you can Google on the website because um, in truth form, I'm not remembering them. But um, I, what's really important is that you be well, you take care of your brain, you exercise, eat healthy, and, um, and just enjoy the fact that when you forget something, it's opening up your brain to learn something new. So have a good week, everybody, and um, be safe. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.